Many of our upper middle class and rich areas have well-performing schools. But our challenge is, is investing in strategies that are successful in our lower middle class or poorer populations. And that's where we're really struggling. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is that strategy that turns those schools around, and we found them. The problem is that they're not being implemented. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, May 17th marked the 60th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, that uh, held state laws establishing separate public schools for black and white students as unconstitutional in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Today, some uh, these six decades later, many parents and teachers are still worried that America's children are not receiving equal access to education as envisioned in that case. As a result, some feel we need alternative schooling options for our children, while others believe the solution lies within a stronger public school system. And here to discuss that topic, we welcome Christian DeAndrea. He is an education policy analyst with the John K. McIver Institute for Public Policy in Madison, Wisconsin. He earned his master's of public policy degree at Vanderbilt University and previously worked for the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice as a state policy director and policy analyst. He is the author of several studies that examine the fiscal and personal impacts of educational reform, and his work has been featured everywhere from the Huffington Post to Education Next. Welcome, Mr. DeAndrea. Wow, Craig. Thanks so much for having me on. And in addition, we would like to welcome to today's show Kyle Surrett. Kyle is the Director of Education Justice Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy, where he works with their partner organizations to strengthen their public education coalitions, develop strategy to help close the opportunity gaps, and he coordinates national and regional campaigns that work to bolster our public education system. Prior to joining the Center for Popular Democracy, Kyle spent over 10 years working on corporate campaigns with groups such as the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the Service Employees International Union, and Change to Win. In 2010, he was awarded the Joe Hill Organizing Achievement Award by the LA Fed and the Los Angeles Orange County Organized Committee. We'd like to welcome Kyle Surrett to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Christian, maybe we could start with you. And before we really get into the topic, uh, let me ask you, uh, for the benefit of our listeners who aren't familiar with your organization, to tell us what you do and where you stand on this question of school choice options. Well, the McIver Institute is a free market think tank founded back in, I believe, 2010. Uh, so we were right here on Castle Square when everything went down with Scott Walker, Act 10, and the massive Wisconsin protests. 
Uh, this is my fourth year with the organization, and uh, I came over from the Friedman Foundation uh, as a school choice and education policy analyst. So where we stand in terms of school choice options, uh, obviously we're believers in a free market having more options and basically giving parents more option, more access to these options is the way to help not only uh, improve student performance, find the right classroom for students that need it, but also is a way that can help our public schools succeed as well. And Kyle, we get a little background from you on, on your organization as well, and perhaps a little bit of an explanation about the range of school choices that are available. Just as a, a layman, I understand we have public schools, private schools, charter schools, I'm sure a whole bunch of other schools that I don't even know about. The Center for Popular Democracy is one of the largest networks of community organizations around the country. And the issues that we work on are largely the issues that affect people that find themselves in poverty. So um, whether that be public education or voting rights or racial justice or immigration justice, um, economic justice, we work from a, both a policy standpoint but also from an organizing standpoint to push for policies and programs that will improve the opportunities for those populations. And where we stand on choice and all the different options that, that are out there, we really are a big believer in proven strategies that lead to wonderful outcomes. And we're not really for choice for choice's sake. So if you have a lot of choices, um, that could be great. But if some of the choices that you're given aren't uh, of the most quality, as we know a lot of our communities are faced with, then we, we challenge communities to find the strategies that have worked for similar places like their community rather than just choosing any option that uh, may be experimental and hasn't proven itself. Christian, what are the choices? Well, in, uh, it depends on where you're looking, but obviously in states like Wisconsin up here, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you have private school choice options, whether that's through a voucher program or tax credit scholarship. But for other states that don't necessarily have private school choice options, you have open enrollment that can take you from a traditional public school to one in a different district. You have homeschooling. You have charter schools, both instrumentality and non-instrumentality, that provide a little bit less oversight but more freedom and, and capability to choose curriculum and, and pointed game plans. Um, you also have homeschooling and virtual schooling. There are several options, and there are just more and more techniques and, and efforts are going into expand the state's K-12 education in America today, even if it's not doesn't include a private school choice program. I'm interested in what both of you think about the question of choice as a civil rights issue you may have seen. I'm sure you've thought about this before, but there was a an op-ed, CNN, the chairman of the Republican National Committee uh, published this op-ed uh, on the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, talking about choice as a civil rights issue these 60 years after Brown. Do, do you see it that way, Christian? Let me ask you that. If anything, I feel like school choice offers parents a way to alleviate residential segregation by allowing them greater access to schools outside of their own neighborhood. Uh, one of the biggest issues that public schools face right now is that unless you have the money to go elsewhere, you're locked into your school just based on where you live. By offering more school choice options, and this includes things like open enrollment and uh, inner-city transfers, up here we have something in Wisconsin called Chapter 220 transfers, which help students get away from their own local public schools and into uh, less segregated schools. 
by expanding those options, you give parents the opportunity to move beyond just their local uh, choices and find a technique or find a school that not only fits their student but maybe gives them a greater uh, greater cultural depth. Kyle, what about you? How do you see that issue? Well, we've actually been following a number of studies. Um, I think the biggest one was out of UCLA, but there's a bunch of other smaller ones that have shown that the charterization um, of our cities have left them increasingly segregated. So that's uh, not in the direction that we think it should be going. Um, of course, Brown versus Board of Education um, was meant to deal a blow to segregation, and I think unwittingly we're seeing a situation where since 2000, the the number of students enrolled in charter schools has doubled three times, and while that's happened, there's some consequences of that, and one has been um, this increasing levels of, of segregation. So I think that I think that we just need to analyze what we're doing in in this free market, let a million flowers bloom, and try to figure out some of the consequences of this head headlong strategy. As we wind our way through this, are are we finding really that we still have a race issue or is it a a money issue? What what's the root of this problem? Well for me I think it's it's a culturally based problem that's starting in the neighborhoods and bleeding into the schooling from there. So when you offer uh, in a place like Milwaukee, for example, which is a very racially segregated city, they've had to deal with a lot of white flight out of the city and into the suburbs. When you have something like the school choice programs, which recently allowed the city to expand outside of city limits and into the county limits, you're giving parents more options to reunite with their former residents of the city and maybe get back to that more diverse, less segregated student body that we saw back in the 90s before yeah, it, it took a turn for the worse. What about this cost issue? Uh, are charter schools and, and other choice options uh, diverting funds away from the public schools and diminishing the quality of the public schools? Well, I, I don't mean to cut Kyle off here or jump in for you. You can do anything. But, I mean, the funding aspect of choice in charter schools is something that is often very, very heated debate. But the bottom line is that choice only takes aggregate funds from the schools where students are not and students and parents aren't satisfied. Uh, good schools that are retaining their students don't have to worry about that. They're naturally insulated from school choice programs because parents and students are happy. Additionally, your voucher, your tax credit scholarships, or even your charter school per-student uh, funding numbers are typically significantly less than the per-student funding for your traditional public schools. And then you have other things on top of that, declining enrollment counts to ghosters, uh, even you know, just the, the way most funding formulas work, not only here and Wisconsin, but across the country, that keeps them from being too badly damaged on a year-by-year basis, but also leads to more per-student funding. Now, I know that sounds rocky, but when you lose students, you know you don't have to worry about educating them anymore, but a percentage of the money that was sent out for them in the voucher uh, remains with the, district, the sending district, that leads to a bigger pot for less students, and that leads to more per-student funding in the area. Um, and we've seen that here in Wisconsin. The Milwaukee Parental School Choice Program, over a 20-year period, has saved about $300 million statewide. Uh, it's saving about, and depending on uh, figures you look at, about $40 million a year right now, just because the voucher amount is so much lower than the per-student funding number in Milwaukee. 
Why are public schools failing? Can't we concentrate our money instead of vouchers and other programs? Can't we concentrate our money in fixing the system that we have? Well, there is a popular perception that public schools are failing, but it's too broad of a um, of a net to cast. If you go to most of our upper middle class areas, you'll find that our schools are amazingly good in those areas. And we actually find that in a funny way, people are going to places like Finland and South Korea and China, all over the world to figure out what folks are doing to have great education systems when they could look internally. And if you look at the PISA numbers um, or any of the testing numbers that compare, many of our upper middle class and rich areas have well-performing schools. What our challenge is, is investing in strategies that have, that are successful in our lower middle class or, or poorer populations. And, and that's where we're really struggling. And we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is that strategy that turns those schools around. And we found them. The problem is that they're not being implemented. So we have places like Union City, New Jersey, where they implemented something along the lines of what you would call a community school model. And in 1999, and this is one of the most impoverished areas you can imagine, in 1999, they had math scores that were 42% proficient and reading scores that were 32% proficient. And by 2007, the math scores went from 42% to 69%, and reading went from 32% to 76%. And this was out privatizing our education system. And Union City just serves as one of many examples of just to turn themselves around because they, they use proven research and proven strategies um, to work with populations that are poor in order to succeed. Kyle and Christian, we need to take a short break uh, before we go on with the show. Uh, we will be back uh, in just a few moments to talk more about the question of school choice uh, in, in this 60th anniversary of, of Brown versus Board of Education. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Christian DeAndrea from the John K. McIver School for Public Policy and Kyle Surrett from the Center for Popular Democracy. Kyle, what role do teachers' unions have in this discussion? Well, I think that they probably should have a pretty big role because when we talk about teachers' unions, what we're really talking about is 
teachers. They are the ones who make up these unions. So the educators are the ones who, if you're going to ask them what works, then you probably go ask an educator. Just like if you wanted to come up with a great um, policy on heart surgery, you ask the heart surgeons. So teachers' unions have to have a role uh, within their advocacy organization hat on to put forward the best policies that would work best in their populations. And in that example that I gave recently about Union City, it's 100% union there, and they they worked with the district to really put together a collaborative strategy to win. Uh, the problem that we see oftentimes is when we start um, antagonistic and we don't look for the bridges that that we need in order to succeed for the children. Kyle, you've just published a pretty big study on, well, the, the title of the study is Charter School Vulnerabilities to Waste, Fraud, and Abuse. And, and you found that there is, uh, at least what you found is that there's a lot of, well, waste of, of money uh, that's gone to charter. There's sometimes a fraudulent waste of, of, of money. Is this something that charter schools uh, themselves, in your view, are particularly susceptible to, or is this something that's endemic to uh, educational institutions of any kind? I think it might be endemic to all education institutions. Um, The major difference here is that public schools operate in the daylight of a lot of oversight that we've come up with over the last hundred years as we've had our public education system, and charter schools normally operate in the shadows. So, So when we instituted our charter laws in all of our states, no one really thought too well about how do we put in oversight mechanisms so that we are protecting the public dollar? Not only, like, let alone, like, the quality of the schooling, but how do we just do basic things, like make sure that, that charter operators aren't spending state and federal funds buying an airplane or a condo in Florida or improving their house? And these are examples that we found in our report. We didn't do any new research to uncover new fraud. We just looked at what federal officials have prosecuted, and we just looked at 15 major charter markets, and we found over $100 million in waste, fraud, and abuse. And if you had to ask us why, it's mostly because there's no investment in the oversight to capture it. So you find that there are certain charter operators that are committing fraud for five or ten years, but in the public system, a lot of times that is caught in the like one year, two year because the oversight mechanism is um, is thorough enough. So Christian, would you agree there's more oversight re- required here of uh, some of these school choice options? Absolutely. Uh, more accountability is the key. The problem is how do you institute that kind of accountability, not only at administrative level, but in student uh, data collection level, without severely hampering and stepping on the toes of the methods that make these schools unique. It's an issue we've had up here in Wisconsin that's that's been driving people nuts. We've gone over for the past three years where we try to create an accountability program that can be applied to all types of school that accepts public funding, and no one can really agree on what uh, what a what constitutes a bad school, and b what uh, what sanctions should be there. So uh, to Kyle's point, it should be easier to make those those kind of sanctions and institute penalties and create more oversight at an administrative level. The problem there arises when you get into that student data collection level and, and interfering with teachers and uh, curriculum and uh, what makes these schools, uh, every school, not just your public schools, what makes them unique. 
Let's take this and look at it from a practical perspective. If I'm a parent with a child in a school that I think is failing and I want to pursue other options, where do I go? What do I look at? Who do I talk to? What steps am I supposed to take? Well, I guess one of the biggest problems with school choice right now is that we don't really have that data collection. Um, I mean, some states are, are moving out. That's lower to set the example with the school report card grades. Wisconsin's following it now. But the biggest problem that faces school choice is uninformed parents. Uh, if you have an uninformed parent that makes a bad choice, that helps sustain bad schools. And bad schools and bad actors don't help anyone. Uh, you know, when we go back to that accountability issue, uh, very few people can understand what constitutes a bad school or agree on that, but everyone knew that you want to get the bad actors out, even the choice schools, because they knew that they make everyone bad, they make everyone, they drag everyone down, they provide the key argument against school choice vouchers, tax credits, scholarships. So, uh, the key is getting to the parents and, and making them understand that what constitutes a good school, that there's more than just achievement scores, that student growth is such a major, major aspect of understanding how students perform in the classroom. And I think a lot of states are beginning to pick up on that. We're seeing a reform movement that not only is working to hold more schools accountable, but teachers accountable as well, uh, through just simple grading and simple uh, progress reports that involve the community and use new systems of uh, dissemination and, and publication to help communities better understand what's going on at their neighborhood public school and private school. Yeah, if I could add to that, I, I agree with uh, Christian on parents have been proven to line up to schools that don't necessarily have the outcomes that that you think would cause a line to form outside of that school. If you were talking about a parent or parents, a group of parents, a community trying to decide what was the best choice for their community given the lower-performing um, environment that they were in, I would advocate for them to analyze the nature of their community and figure out what has been successful there. So I think everyone knows that KIPP uh, has been a pretty successful in terms of academic outcomes of within the communities in which they operate within the charter school realm. But uh, you can take an example. Even KIPP has uh, failed in some circumstances when, for example, the one in Denver, when they took over the Cole Middle School in 2005, this is a situation where they took over a whole middle school, which falls kind of outside of their operating model. And by 2009, they gave up because they couldn't do it because they didn't have the conditions that they usually have, which is the most motivated kids in the neighborhoods applying to those schools. So if you're looking in your community for a, a scalable solution for everyone, that's one example that only really has been proven to work in situations where, um, where selectivity comes, comes to play. So if you want to find scalable solutions, we really view community schools as a scalable solution because it allows poor parents to model their communities after other ones to figure out what's worked in, in various places. Yeah, and to piggyback, um, I mean, KIPP is a great example of a successful charter school. Like Kyle said, it doesn't work in great situations. That's just one sector of the school choice uh, spectrum. And, I mean, if anything, that suggests that we need more options, uh, more creative attempts, more diverse uh, school backgrounds and, and uh, operational standouts to give the students that weren't successful in KIPP, weren't successful in their, their public schools, because obviously that were 
for the most part, that's why they ended up in the Youth Kids Academy. Um, gives them another option behind just a charter school uh, that doesn't fit them or a public school that doesn't fit them. Christian, from your perspective, what what should be done from a public policy standpoint to to make sure those options are available? I mean, what what are you looking to see, if anything, done on a legislative level to encourage school choice? Well, I mean, it's something that can take on uh, several different uh, take several different paths. Um, one of the easiest ones is just expanding the scope of open enrollment in the district. Up here in Wisconsin, we had a very limited uh, application period. We've expanded that from three weeks to three months. That allows parents to do the research on the schools that aren't only in their uh, local school district, but may fit them better, uh, not only uh, in uh, driving distance, but maybe a, or a virtual charter school or uh, something of that effect. Uh, the other uh, other ways that, uh, from a policy standpoint, what we can see is policymakers finding the schools that work, maybe creating a task force, finding the methods that are being successful and replicating them. Uh, one of the big issues that we have is that we have a very strong network of non-instrumentality charter schools in Milwaukee, but we have no method to replicate them outside of the city limits. There's no outside charter authorizer to make those work, and regardless of how successful these schools are, they have no real room to grow. So the biggest policy issue there is going to be finding ways to not only expand the amount of options there, but finding the methods that are being successful and replicating them. Kyle, I know you come at it from a very different perspective, but what would you be looking for from a policy level to provide for at least more informed or uh, choices about charter schools and, and school choice or to uh, ensure uh, fairness in, in, in school choice? Yes, so I think I come at it from, our organization comes at it from a very similar standpoint. How could we expand existing quality models out there um, and many of our members are in charter schools and many of our members are in public schools and, um, but the only true scalable model that if you're going to talk about how do you change it for a city is to try to think about what are we doing to our public schools to turn those things around, um, for the ones that do need to be turned around. So, um, we've authored a community school model legislation, which you can find on our website at populardemocracy.org, which gives a roadmap to uh, state, senate, and assembly leaders and governors for the exact policies that you would need to put in place in order to institute community schools. And what a community school does is touches every point of what helps make our quality schools quality. And so it goes from the very, very most basic thing of if a child has uh, trouble seeing, it'll figure out a way to get that child to an optometrist. Or if the child's coming to school hungry or with mental health issues, it'll give the teachers the skills that they need to deal with 21st century students. So if you went to school back in the 80s or 70s and now you're trying to teach a population today, that could be very different. And, and our great researchers have figured out largely what works. So we're, we're really in the belief of we've had a lot of research and time and figuring out how to innovate. And we have the models out there that are successful. So we view 21st century as an implementation century rather than trying to explore 20 million new ways to succeed with children. Excellent. We are getting near the end of our program time and wanted to make sure each of you had an opportunity to 
provide us with your closing thoughts before we wrap up the show. So let's get your closing thoughts. And also, as you do that, we'd like to ask you to tell our listeners how they can follow up with you and your organization and find out more about the work that you're doing. So, uh, Christian, uh, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, Kyle made a great point about Union City and how our response intervention was very successful there. They were able to turn around the whole district. Unfortunately, those success stories are pretty few and far between in both public and charter schools. If you take a look at the uh, 2011 study, Are Bad Schools Immortal, uh, by Dr. David Stite, they examined uh, these districts over a five-year period. Eighty percent of your public school districts remained in the lowest quartile of performance. Seventy-two percent of your charter school districts, or charter schools, remained in the same place as well. It's not those response intervention programs haven't traditionally been successful, and that's why we need to keep looking for new methods, new techniques, and find the programs that work and replicate them while pushing the bad ones out. That's what the heart and soul of school choice is. It goes beyond just providing parents options and providing students the chance to match themselves with the classroom that fits them the best. It's about finding the methods that work and expanding them to reach a greater audience. So that's it for me. My name is Christian Gandry. I'm the Education Policy Analyst over at the McIver Institute. You can find our stuff at www.mcIverInstitute.com, M-A-C-I-V-E-R, and you can find us on Twitter at McIverWisk. M-A-C-I-V-E-R-W-I-S-C. Thank you very much. And Kyle Surrett, your final thoughts and uh, how we can follow up with you. Great. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. So I guess my final thoughts are that when our communities are struggling with trying to figure out what to do with their school systems, number one, we should be looking inside the United States because there's a reason why we're one of the we're the number one country in the world on many different levels, including our education system. So we could really look at our, our rich areas to figure out what they do, and they really just provide many of the great resources to these schools to make them succeed. So choice for choice's sake, for folks to kind of steer away, agreeing that we need to figure out ways to scale up um, and be ambitious and uh, not choose some kids over all kids and similar things like that. And if I had to give, if there are any state lawmakers listening to the show, I'd urge them to act because they're not acting on trying to figure out scalable options and they're not acting on accountability. And the ones that are paying for this are children and largely are poor children. And if you want to find all the great things that TPD, the Center for Popular Democracy, is doing, just go to populardemocracy.org and surf around. If you go into the staff section, you'll find information about me and how to contact me. Great. Thank you very much. Well, Bob, this is our opportunity to offer our final thoughts, and we have 30 seconds to do so, so you're going to get cut off by the buzzer. Here you go. You know, Craig, I remain concerned that school choice options sometimes work to the advantage, disadvantage rather of inner city schools, of poor schools, uh, and of the less advantaged in our, in our society. I worry about uh, the diversion of funds and resources away from those who most need them. I think policymakers need to take a good, hard look at this issue, give it some careful thought. I'm not sure that I sure, well, I know that I don't know what the answer is, but I do remain very concerned about the potential for uh, 
for causing more harm than good through uh, some of these school choice options. Well, Bob, I kind of agree with you uh, on this one. And and having attended a private school myself as a child, I've seen both sides from the student standpoint, certainly not from an adult or a teacher or an administrative standpoint, and certainly not legislative. But it seems to me that if you take resources away from the center piece of our education system, and that is public school K through 12, you've pretty much taken money away from them. There's just no two ways about it. So offering additional choices, private schools, charter schools, homeschooling, really diverts resources from our main emphasis. And I think that we should focus all of our energies on on the public school system. I don't know that there's a solution to this, but that's it. And there's the buzzer. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks again to Christian, to Andrea, and Kyle Surrett for taking the time to be with us today. And thanks for listening. Join us next week for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.